Welcome to Health 4.0 Leadership Podcast. My name is Namrata Bagaria and I'm your host. We are an Ottawa-based virtual institute. And my today's guest is Robert Walsh, a meteorologist with Ottawa Public Health. Welcome, Robert. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Welcome to Health 4.0 Leadership Podcast. And as you know, this podcast is for Health 4.0 Institute, which aims to create and build leadership and capacity for the Health 4.0 ecosystem. So can you explain to us where are you contributing in the present health ecosystem, in what capacity, and what are your top three mandates? So I guess I'd start answering that by telling you just a little bit about me so you get the sense of, of where I fit based on my training, my experience pieces, mm -hmm. and, uh, and then I can move to the other. Mm -hmm. So I have a master's in business administration. I have a master's in public health, and then I have a PhD in public health and health systems. So I have two master's level or graduate degrees that are practice-based, they're practical um, uh, degrees, and then I've tied that together with an academic one. I've been also a CEO of national organizations that work at the nexus of policy, practice, research, and patients, patients' communities kind of idea, or public, if you will. And so really helping to kind of tie those groups together, so make linkages between each of them and all of them. And so that gives me kind of a unique perspective uh, by working at a systems level. So when you ask about uh, what's my mission in the system, my mission is actually to improve population health. And I do it by connecting people to information and then connecting people to people in that quadrat of policy, practice, research, and public um, so that knowledge can actually be created. Wow. That's quite a lot you do, huh? <laughs> Well, it's like, like so many of us, right? It comes from a passion, so. Okay, and uh, at present, you're working on a very interesting project. So can you tell us what are you doing now? Certainly, certainly. So at Ottawa Public Health, while I was originally brought in as an evaluator or to use my evaluation skills, again, as a, um, a person who's been called a leader in uh, public health in the past, as a, a CEO, I actually wanted to, in these past two years that I've been doing more consulting, um, I've wanted to dive into organizations and challenge myself on some of those assumptions I've made of what management and governance are and what they do and how that actually lives deeper in the organization. So while I was brought in at that first part to be an evaluator within a unit and to kind of help with stuff, my personal experience on that was fabulous because I really was able to see how some of that management um, lives within an organization and then look at my own development. But now, of course, with uh, COVID-19, uh, a lot of Ottawa Public Health has been deployed to that. I don't know the exact number, uh, but I am one of those people. So now I'm working in the logistics on stakeholder engagement uh, in terms of people who already connect with public health um, whether that's schools, those types of ideas, and I'm supporting the project management portion of that as people with the relationships are communicating the information of what those places need to do to uh, survive and thrive in this, right? And meet mm -hmm. their mandates of supporting the public. Mm -hmm. So you've been through 
a lot of different roles in the health ecosystem. And uh, what were your challenges? What were your learnings? What were your top three takeaways, if you will? And how are you proceeding further? You can speak to the past or you could be more specific to your present examples. I leave the choice to you. Thank you. I, I think for me, um, honestly, it's my, my own limitations uh, that has been probably my biggest challenge. I ca I've tried to be a generalist who can work on specific pieces, so to bring these skills to particular parts. And one of the things that happens is something will come up and it's a question, it's so simple or elegant, I don't know quite how to talk about it, I'm even trying to think of an example, but you just never thought of it, even with my training. Okay, I do have one. Uh, looking at how media trends, if you apply an epidemiologic curve, mm -hmm. can actually inform uh, work planning. Right, and I know this, and yet in in the day to day practice, it's it's that piece of knowing the difference between knowing something theoretically and then knowing it in practice. And uh, I, I have other examples, uh, you know, as we kind of talk that I can speak to. But I think that's one of the biggest things, right? Is mm -hmm. is really knowing how to act on these things and how to contextualize that knowledge to the different settings you're in. That's, I'm going to say, has been my biggest um, uh, challenge. The other, I would say, again, it's personal, but it's, it's um, uh, we call it Bob speak, or I call it Bob speak, and people who work with me, I introduce them to it, because <laughs> I'm pulling from so many different disciplines. And mm -hmm. in my mind, I'm trying to hear the language that's coming back. And mm -hmm. so as I'm, I'm talking to somebody who I know is a social worker, I'm going to be using some connections of what I know from that discipline. Mm -hmm. And when I hear the language that we have in common, I know I can now start introducing some other things. I, I grew up in a family of educators, so I can use a lot of pedagogical language um, and then pull them into particular things. And so in public health, I can do that same thing. But it does mean that sometimes people are left scratching their head going, what did you just say? And I've got my cue that, okay, let's, let's you know, do this again. So those aspects of, you know, honestly, the, the stuff now in terms of my top lessons that I've gotten that have been about communication. They've been about the skills of giving and receiving feedback. And that's an old one for me. I'm, I did that at a addiction treatment center, uh, working there uh, in terms of working with people to, to give and receive feedback and the, the responsibility of the receiver to take the feedback or to work with the feedback and understand it regardless how it was given. So I've worked with people who say, oh, I don't mind uh, criticism or feedback as long as it's constructive. Not me. <laughs> Rip me apart. I'll be able to separate myself Mm -hmm. from the behavior that you're talking about, even if you can't in giving it to me. So that was one. Those aspects of closed-loop communication, right, that we see in surgery, that we see in these other places where an instruction has to be given, received, executed, delivered back, and handed off, and closed loop, right? Mm -hmm. Those pieces, they're so, when we approach our work from a social perspective, we lose parts of uh, we lose parts of that because there's a sense to say I'm not an idiot. You don't need to ask me. Did I hear what you said? I've got ears, mm -hmm. and yet 
and closed loop communication that's so important. And so reminding people, absolutely. But this is technical and we're in a technical situation. So we're wanting to move through this. So, you know, all of those steps as you hand off, handshake, hand back and closed loops become critical. Mm-hmm. Another one I would tell you is the difference between information and knowledge has been pivotal in okay. for me. That idea that sentience is involved when you move up the information processing period uh, mm-hmm. pyramid from data and information up to knowledge and wisdom, that sentience is required. Yes, technology is blurring that a little bit with AI, um, but that piece in terms of how in our systems we talk about knowledge when really we're talking about information. So when I talked about connecting people with the knowledge, uh, the information that they need to accomplish whatever, and then connecting them to the people to help them, that is because in these contexts, knowledge development is a social process. Mm-hmm. I'll give you two last throwaways. One is mm-hmm. complexity, complexity theory and the other is systems thinking. Those mm-hmm. have been uh, things that I'm constantly having to you know, go to. I'm, not, I'm in my home office, not my work office, but I have definitions and examples on the wall so that I can say, you know, emergence, right, that's this. Not everything is reducible down to an individual. And when we're dealing with population health, that becomes so important. So limiting to three was very tough. <laughs> but this is interesting, right? Because it's kind of got me to more questions. Um, not, not the initial next question, what I had in mind, but I'm going to add something more. So you, you had a very interesting take on difference between information and knowledge. And now we've been friends for a while, I think two years now. And, uh, you know, I'm interdisciplinary too. And I'm in engineering now um, doing my PhD. And there's a huge talk about knowledge to action. And then yes. my previous background is, is, you know, as an entrepreneur, it's more about action to wisdom. So <laughs> it's very interesting that you have information, knowledge, action, and wisdom. And uh, quick one sentence, how do you see them? Do you see them linear? Do you see them circular? Do you see them? Um, well, let me add two more for you. You have phenomena, you have data, then you have information, then you have knowledge, then you have wisdom. Okay. And uh, the, what technology did at the first one was phenomena to data. It really helped us describe data. And really, when you think of object-oriented programming from all those years ago, what object-oriented programming helped us do was really assign where that data element sits. Is it a concatenation of two forms of entities? Right. Yeah. So we really started to be able to define find where the metadata actually applied to which entities or to which relationship. And then as we started moving in, even taking project management in that and looking at flow, um, we really again started to look at and learn more about that, that uh, connection or that flow up from phenomena to data. And then of course, as that got going and people started working at it, that groupings of data sets became information and we really started to use that because now we're even um, taking in aspects of communication and we're looking at how this stuff is packaged and put together so that people can take it in but there's always that jump that needs to happen i've worked with researchers or, or other academics who will say you know they're transferring knowledge and I'm, I'm technically, when we're having that conversation, I say, actually, you're transferring information. It's your knowledge 
But for them, it's information until they work with it, until so they're the able to assimilate this. Bob, what's the difference between knowledge and information when you speak of it? So when I'm using that and in, in looking at that from the, the information processing model, and uh, you know this is uh, what, 40, 50-year-old model kind of idea, it's actually looking at it that now information is grouped together and it's melded with experience. And so in this case, you're now starting to add that individual person's context to it, right? So now knowledge sits with the individual and it can sit with groups. So as we've started to move into this place, and again, AI is part of the disruption that has really helped that become much more of a, uh, uh, a cure, the curiosity within that and people wanting to say, well, what's happening? Because isn't this piece that this computer is doing, isn't it knowledge? Mm -hmm. And I would absolutely have to say, yeah, it's a form of it. Mm -hmm. But is it directed to a purpose? Is it, right? Is it all of these kind of different pieces? Can an individual use this and contextualize it. And then when we group those contextualizations, then we start to move to wisdom. When we get to those places that we're looking at, what is the key? What is the synthesis? What, is the, um, what are the parts of this that are universal? What are the parts of this that are on the edges? Then we start to get to those wisdoms, right? And, and you can think of this happening. And, and I, I think of the you know, the, the microprocessor stuff, you know, from, from the 8086 chip all yeah. the way to wherever we are now. I don't even know, right? I'll tell but, you where we are now. Yeah. <laughs> I, love, I, love, I love this podcast because every time, we have, uh, every time we have a guest, they say something and that triggers something in me. So I, I don't think I've ever told you what my thesis is exactly. And today, in fact, uh, um, uh, we have a presentation with my boss, but uh, my thesis is context awareness using design patterns for uh, physical fitness app gamification. So basically, you're rewarding people with points and badges, but what is the, how can you use a domain knowledge and how can you transfer that and how can you make it more user specific, more context aware? So as you spoke what you spoke, I almost was like, okay, Bob, I'm doing this. And, <laughs> and, and you validated what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, and when you think of it, could you imagine if your app actually populated anonymously a public health database? Yeah. Right? You'd have population level yeah. experience of fitness. You, and you'd yeah. have it geophysical, right? So exactly. you'd be, if it's on someone's phone, you'd be able to say, hey, you know what? If we do this in this neighborhood, people might just use it because you're yeah. going to be able to. One of the things I'm going to talk about, uh, I, I wanted to talk about and introduce was that idea of the Rogerian, right? Diffusion of innovation. And, you know, uh, you had asked me in prep a little bit about challenges. and I don't need to go there yet. But yeah, there's, there's all of those pieces. But the, that part for me, what a cool thesis, by the way. Um, Thank you. <laughs> the part for me on the knowledge to wisdom was that speed that the 8086 went to the next, went to the next, went to the next, kept shortening. And if I take that back in... in in times historica, mm -hmm. how long did it take for somebody to come up with the wisdom, the adage, a mm. stitch in time saves nine, right? Mm. But that's, ex that's the analogy I would draw, that people experienced, you know, through whatever type of work patterns that they were doing, that, mm. oh, you know what, if I, if I do this now, I'm going to 
this is going to make these things so much easier. And then it started to cross across disciplines. Mm -hmm. Industrial revolution came. I don't know when the phrase came up in that, but that whole idea then is exactly how data moved to information, moved to knowledge, moved to wisdom. So. Awesome. so I'm happy to know I'm trying to do something from knowledge to wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> so at least, at least I can say I tried to be wise otherwise. <laughs> and, and you know what? Everybody has wisdom and everybody has, uh, has uh, foolishness and naivety. Uh, yeah. You know, we, we have and we possess all of these. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think it's how we let them interplay. Uh, and how we are open, you know, part of what I, I see and part of what you and I have talked about over our, our coffees and teas yes, and yes. chai lattes and all of that <laughs> stuff has been the um, has been the polarization or the ability for people for new information to actually close seemingly close some people's minds and entrench them in a place as opposed to engaging the curiosity. And so I think that's where if we're really moving this up, then we are engaging that playfulness and curiosity around this. And we're staying with ideas, not with the people, mm-hmm. right? We're, mm-hmm. we're allowing an idea to come in. Anyways. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, for me, uh, I think this dives into the next topic because which is the question was, what is Health 4.0? What are the opportunities and collaborations you're looking at? And what kind of technologies do you see as being you know, relevant? Yeah, yeah. And so for me, this is, uh, there's just so much opportunity. So, so for me, Health 4.0 is a cast back to the past mm-hmm. to recast forward mm-hmm. and it's systems thinking so mm-hmm. it really is employing these pieces of all different uh, uh, interdisciplinary interprofessional those places but looking even beyond an institutional level to the relationships Part of what we've seen is that stuff isn't necessarily reducible to an individual or an organization. And we can all think of those intersectoral tables we've been at where that table actually takes on a quality of its own. And the characteristics are incumbent on that table. I've been at ones where industry has been involved, for example, and they have been vibrant and uh, and they've just really, you can tell, you can walk in and you say, there's leadership here. And so part of the Health 4.0 is looking at, so what is that? What is that characteristic? When we talk of leadership, we always tend to bring it down, especially in popular uh, as opposed to academic. We bring it down to the experience of the individual. Mm-hmm. And yet we can look at an, indiv- at an organization and we can all think of them and say, you know, that there's a, a leadership team and go, well, actually, that's just positional authority. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right that's well said well said <laughs> and that's part, part of the reason like if you look at the mission vision of the institute which i founded earlier this year it's basically talking about building capacities and building leadership and and the one focus area is coaching okay yep. you cannot talk about just because you have a title you are a leader no ways Sometimes it could be someone at the grassroots level who's the leader. Sometimes the individual themselves can take ownership of their health and be leaders for themselves and then collaborate with other leaders who can help them be better at what they are, right? 
Yep. So, so yeah. There's an, academic, uh, there's an academic in Texas named Mary Ulbying, and she's looked yeah. at complexity leadership and she's looked at relational leadership. I, I, uh, I'm, you know, I, I have a crush. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> and it's an what, intellectual crush. An intellectual you know, crush. Disclaimer: People confessing their hearts intellectually on my podcast. <laughs> yes. But she talks about some of the tasks of leadership and they are removing barriers like the allowing the quick and easy access to information and access to people, right? So that people can go in and actually um, people have the ability to grasp what they uh, to get what they need to accomplish their goals and accomplish the organizational goal. And so when I learned that and I started looking at these tables, I started saying, right, information is flowing freely here. People aren't, you know, putting up a, a wall. You can't see me, but I'm, I'm putting my hands up like a, a, in front of my face to protect my information. They're letting it out there, right? They're giving it freely. And they're connecting people with people freely. So that's a task of leadership. And I've been at tables where I've seen that happening. And then the possibility starts. The other part that I've seen is that those tables also know when they're in idea generation mm -hmm. and when they're in deciding so that they don't flip stuff off. You might, you know, part of what I've seen happen at some of these places uh, that I've been, been with is that, uh, you know, we're kind of talking, we're looking at a problem, somebody gives an idea, somebody else says three reasons why it wouldn't work. And so we move on. Instead yeah. of kind of putting the idea up and then at the end of the meeting, right, mm -hmm. saying, now going through and saying, what's a few of, what would make, why, you know, how would this not work? How would it work, right? Mm -hmm. And now saying, are there any of these we actually want to learn a little bit more about and, and work up? Because that's where, to me, I think we kill innovation quite quickly mm -hmm. when we move that too quickly. Mm -hmm. I've, you know, I've had a few things in my, uh, and I'm, I'm prone to alliteration sometimes, uh, uh, and uh, maybe hyperbole. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I've been to in some situations where something has came at me and I've had an idea and I've put it out there and I've said, now, right off the top of my head, I can think of 10 reasons not to do this, but I can think of 10 reasons to do it. So I don't know if it's a good idea or not, but in case somebody else has a different brain or is looking at this problem from a different way, mm -hmm. um, you know, that uh, elephant in the blind people kind of idea analogy, mm -hmm. um, that, uh, that piece, then that might plant a seed for someone else, right? And that's kind of a part of those communication pieces. But there's also that part of the difference between governance and management. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so key when we have seen uh, governments move into management mm -hmm. and to the detriment of their governance role. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I, 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 not thinking of any one in particular, but mm -hmm. it's been a trend as you look that I would, I would say over mm -hmm. the past 20 years. And we're being forced again to kind of look back at those people who are guarding the ethics of our decision, who are looking at the broader, and who are looking at the accountability mechanisms of that moving back to a purpose or a mm -hmm. vision. Mm -hmm. And so that part of that, I think we're seeing that and, uh, and, and seeing movement on that. Um, you know, empirical evidence to support this, I'm not there. <laughs> <laughs> but I see it. 
Um, and then I'm also seeing the improvement of management. Um, for me, the, the opportunity that I'm seeing then is actually the, you know, to, to bring this back to kind of health leadership, I'm seeing the practice of population health improve. Yay. So, yeah, <laughs> because, because both of us are masters in public health, and that's <laughs> the game for us. You know? <laughs> awesome. Well, but it's the kind of thing. It's been a. There's people who practice it, mm -hmm. um, and and they're not necessarily academics. And there's been academics who study it, right? Mm -hmm. And so part of that role that I've been in, that I talked to you about, being at the nexus of that. Mm -hmm. On tobacco control, when I worked in, in, in you know, that area, mm -hmm. I would have academics saying to me, you know, we have seven years between, and I'm making up the date, but we have X amount of years between us knowing this and it getting into practice. Yes. Right? And I, I and read somewhere it was 25 years, by the way. So you're sure, sure. <laughs> but what I realized was depending on what camp I was standing in, Mm -hmm. um, and always as an outsider, uh, mm -hmm. that gap was viewed differently, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> so yeah. from the practice, or let me go from the policy perspective, they were saying, right, so uh, unfortunately the gap is that I need this answer by tomorrow, and the study's going to take three and a half years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And then I move over to practice, and they're like, this is lovely, but it's not contextualized enough for me to do this. Mm -hmm. So that's why, as you know, in public health, as we train public health professionals, we train them to assess evidence, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we train them to allow these pieces so that they can then contextualize it for their practice. Mm -hmm. And part of what this current opportunity with, with uh, COVID is, is happening is that that whole sharing is becoming much more critical. And so those pieces of people holding on to uh, their research and guarding that research is broken down. And even the peer review process is gone back to what is the purpose of peer review? The one part is peer, but then the second part is so that we can know the limitations, but also if you're going to be applying this, you know, I guess that's still limitations, but it's more the contextual pieces of them because different people are going to rip it apart. And even in that, I've seen the value of paying attention to the, the troll, mm -hmm. right? Not responding necessarily, but mm -hmm. wow, what a wonderful gift to me to see how this messaging is actually being interpreted. Mm -hmm. So now I know what I need to do to help contextualize the message so that people get it better, right? So on those pieces, I, I, I see that happening. And I had another example that I think made, made it much more um, uh, explicit as well. Mm -hmm. Everybody has signed confidentiality agreements and everybody know those knows those pieces. Mm -hmm. And yet I've been in situations where interdisciplinary, right? So I'm coming at it from one place. And other people in this team are from education. Some are even on uh, uh, not employed, right? Either retired or some of them are on ODSP in, in the province, uh, not working. Um, might be, you know, considered from one lens, people with lived experience, if you will. Um, uh, and, but, but again, the really 
valuable contribution to make. Mm -hmm. And so in one of those situations, um, I, you know, uh, having a person come up and actually talk to me about a confidential situation in a public place at a lunch table right? And my eyes getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so then needing to go back to the table, you know, and say, um, so folks, you know, when we talked about confidentiality, let me give you a, it, obviously I stopped the thing and, you know, went from there, but let me give you a, uh, uh, an example, right? And so I went through the example and I said, you know, that's, that's a breach of confidentiality. And so afterwards, when I had debriefed with the individual, they were like, oh my God, right. And so it was that difference between knowing it and you find it, but what does that actually mean in my everyday life? Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's what we're seeing improvement in in public health, uh, population health. We're seeing that idea uh, of those two pieces uh, uh, coming together, that people are really seeing how this lives out in their practice and in the connections between those disciplines, right? So between research and, and practice, between research and policy, we're having those sensitivity parts. The other part that I would tell you is that we're also seeing those, those pieces of clinical moving up. We're seeing clinical interventions having a population level effect. Mm -hmm. And then we're also seeing population level uh, uh, interventions being able to be segmented further and further into a deeper level of granularity and implemented. So those two are approaching each other. And there's tensions because, again, at a clinical level, you're looking at something like least intrusive, most effective as a tenant. I know there's more in, in terms of looking at those pieces. But when you're looking at a population level, you're very much looking at as hard as you can go and as quick as you can go, right? <laughs> Pandemic case in point. But it, you have to have population acceptance of these pieces, right? You have to have these. I go back to smoking cessation, right? We couldn't do smoke-free places if people didn't understand the importance of that in terms of protecting the health. So there was so much groundwork that needed to happen before people started demanding smoke-free spaces. And then it became obviously, you know, an obvious political, well, of course we're doing this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so that's, that's kind of those pieces. The, the other part that I think that I would add on that is, is stuff that deals with um, kind of Rogerian thinking. I'd introduce that here, but I know you've got, you know, you kind of pointed out challenges and I can talk to, to, to it at that point as well. But that idea of, really being able to look at innovators uh, all the way through to, to laggards. And when I worked at Tobacco Control, we actually put that uh, lens on clients and jurisdictions. Obviously, we guarded that, right? Nobody wants to be called a laggard. Nobody wants to be called. A... But when we looked at the, at the description of those, yeah, we could see, um, you know, X province is always wanting both a made here approach, but also first out of the gate. But we also had provinces that said, you know what, we're going to do it when it's tried and true. Mm -hmm. And so from us being able to identify that mm -hmm. and them watching research come in, we were able to go, okay, we need to send that over here first, mm -hmm. there second, see how those people do, keep the others informed. Now when they're ready, gather what those others, because we're keeping them informed, they're going to give us the yabats, 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 
So we gather that form of evidence for them, and now we push it in because we're able to show some forms of, you know, their level of it for them to accept and adopt. So that type of system level navigation, when I talked of system level planning, that needs to happen. Um, and, and it needs to be respected, right? It needs to be that this is where an institution or a group or whatever is. Yeah. That's fine. That's where they are. Yeah. Um, but somebody, some place or yeah. places need to know that so that these pieces can be um, uh, uh, done. You know, part of the problem with, with uh, some of the, the schism or chasm between technology is if as a system we don't know where the, and we're not identifying where these innovators are, where these um, early adopters are, where the, you know, hey, we want it tried and true are, how the heck are we gonna point the innovators in engineering who are reaching out and across to the right place to go, right? Mm -hmm. so, so that kind of comes up for me, but the tech, for me, the tech, what you talked about in terms of exercise, that's, that's key. I think of the smoking cessation potential, right? That, again, we're doing stuff that it's what's the individual experience, that clinical experience, what happens there, but how can that then inform the population level? And obviously, there's the confidentiality privacy and the this and the that and the did to do. But, and, and again, please, I, I, that was not meant to be dismissive. Those are all very important pieces. Mm -hmm. But when you think of that, we also then have to be thinking of exactly that piece, but what's the population level piece on that? And it, you know, parts of it as well are the curiosity. You almost kind of think, where's a place for the, the parking lot, the, the ideas board? that people can do, where's that crowdsourced uh, uh, idea board? Uh, you know, Pinterest used to be huge a few years ago kind of idea, and people had their, their Pinterest board. You know, where's that public sharing of these? I thought, wouldn't it be lovely? <laughs> you, again, you're gonna think, lovely, you're weird, Bob. But that you, you spray something on your face on these types of public health podcasts, where we're talking about hand hygiene, and we're talking about don't touch your face. Well, before we do it, and we're videoing it, let's say, we spray this on our face so that by the end, a mirror is held up to us, and where you touch your face, it turns blue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So now you've got, it's a lower tech, it's not a tech tech, but you've got that ability to say, do you see how much even the people who are telling you not to touch your face, touch their face? I thought of those dentist pills we had as kids, right? That you chewed and you, you yeah. spit out and then it showed where all the plaque was. Those types of tools are, were important in terms of helping change behavior. Well, mm -hmm. you know, and so I know, silly, but if we're not trying to touch our face and it's such an involuntary thing, how do we make that more conscious? And so I'm sure there's somebody who's a chemist out there who says, oh yeah, we just add this here and it'll leave, you know, sorry, Bob, it won't be blue, but it'll do this. It won't, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it won't give them acne and it won't, you know, blah, 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 but it'll do this. Yeah. whatever. I'm, I'm being silly perhaps, but that's okay. <laughs> but that type of stuff is, you know, engaging those curious people and then having those hoppers, those places where people can look and say, uh, wow, yeah, that's quite cool. But again, if, if, if we don't know where the innovators are in this, then a person reaching out to say, hey, I've got this very cool idea, and especially at something like this, this point, right, where our health system is taxed to the max already, um, 
how do you, you know, uh, how does that voice, how does that place get done, you know? And so for me, that's where having people who part of their role is to look at what's that idea that we're not, that we're just missing. Right. And, and some of that, as I say, is it comes in those places where, well, even, even this podcast, right. As you're talking about this, you know, oh my God, you know, an, an app that uh, for people self uh, isolating at home where they can, I don't know, you know, whatever, take their temperature or, you know, say uh, how they're exercising, you know, that they're exercising. Right. And, da, da, da. and, and, Yes, they're getting support wherever that connects to on the one side. But again, from a population level, wow, we actually know some information about particular stuff that we can geo-do. Because again, in these complex areas where COVID is complex, and so we have to be looking at those complexity theory pieces of signaling. We have to be looking at the local context. Right. I, I do go out for a jog. I go for a jog every day. And I actually I know the probability stuff based on yours and my training of if I run past a person and uh, and I'm not within that six feet, but they're going the opposite direction. I know the probabilities of, you know, COVID transmission on that roughly, right, with a huge margin of error. I know it's fairly low, but the signaling is important. So I go a wide berth and I give them the six feet. It's like that broken window piece that New York did at one point, right? That they, they fixed graffiti. They fixed stuff because they wanted to show that this was important within these communities and this was the standard of this community. And it sends a signal. And so that's the same part for me, right? My neighborhood, people are respecting the differences. I've, I've seen people standing 12 feet apart or on lawn chairs, 12 feet apart, talking with each other, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so we see these things. So that is a local behavior. And in complexity, that's where your individual behavior matters in that context because of the signals you're sending and how other people are, are picking mm -hmm. them up. Mm -hmm. so, and just so, to show the difference to our listeners, I'm not running on the streets uh, like barbers. <laughs> I exercise in my backyard. I jog. I have a, I'm fortunate to have a house with a backyard. I know everybody doesn't have that option. And I do a lot of yoga and HIIT workouts indoors. Um, so we, we are two public health people doing completely different take on social isolation. <laughs> so, so, so this is why what we mean by contextualization. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, uh, that's the thing, right? And, and part of what I think we've seen happen is in the absence of, again, because things that move so quickly here, um, you know, we see things like social shaming, right? We see things like mm -hmm. the, the posting of the business that's not respecting it and, and those types of ideas. Mm -hmm. And we put, that's, that's a signal. That's a something that is pop, a population health that gives us another wicked problem. What's a tool we can give people so that they feel they're doing their piece, but they can also help with that signaling. They can help, you know, with those pieces that, to, to allow that whole neighborhood to move over. What are the ways that we can do that? Um, and, and so that, that's, you know, these, these aspects of we're learning on the fly are just so, uh, so important. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. And, 
Yeah. So those, those are kind of, you know, when I think of technology, some of them are, are lower tech. A number of them I really think are these places of the apps, um, but they're getting those pieces so that you're looking at what's that ultimate goal of what this could be used for. And so if it is to have a population effect, well, then we have past examples that we can learn from, right? We have the smokers helplines. We have the things where we did individual interventions and they had a population level effect. You know, so yes, look at the health promotion literature. Look at the, the uh, health policy literature, right? Uh, and experience. More than the literature, the practice space, the implementation science, the experience, the, the colloquial evidence, if you will. Look at those places um, so that as you're building that app, think of those parts. Um, yes, you will get to the privacy concerns and you will get to the, but there are groups that are, are, um, are dealing with that. You know, part of the, the problem we've had in um, Canada, I would say, is we've uh, done a disservice by treating primary care mm -hmm. a bit like a, probably a bit too much in my opinion as a business, as opposed to actually using, uh, if we're going to do that, the incentivizing. So mm -hmm. to say, yep, we will help subsidize your, um, on your uh, uh, patient, your electronic record, if, your electronic record meets these standards and does these things. Mm -hmm. And if you then agree to be part of these sentinel pieces, right? Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, the beauty in Ontario of the Health Promotion and Protection Act is it gave public health a role to ensure that things were happening across the health system. It didn't give it the T, but even in the monitoring of it, you don't always need the teeth, sticks, carrots, right? The, you catch more flies with honey than this. And, you know, there's a, a third part of that of caca. You know, you catch more with that. <laughs> but, but those ideas, of, there are lots of ways to motivate. Um, and, and so part of that is that we have, you know, how many pay models in, in Ontario? I think 200 or more for primary care. We have, I don't know how many forms of electronic record, and we still have using paper. So that, that whole piece of um, the, you know, gathering the information in a time like COVID and bringing this up and making it as, as relevant as possible in the moment, how challenging that is just because some of these pieces didn't have, apparently, didn't have that planning and piece to kind of put these. So yes, groups have been working on that. There have been groups who have been doing those connection pieces to ensure that we are gathering this stuff. Uh, there's a group called Sipson um, that uh, gathers primary care uh, information. There uh, is a, uh, an app, I think, out of Briere. I can't even think of the fellow's name, but uh, uh, again, it's a, a primary care piece uh, where he's, it's kind of an alert, a way that a primary care uh, organization, uh, family health team, can actually do follow-up with their patients in a group type of thing, right? So that it, it says, okay, this person came in for hypertension, five days later, three, two days later, 48 hours, it's going to send this to them, it's going to do this. So it, it's going to make it automatic. The clinician can still go in there and do stuff. Well, now we've got a tool that's going to feed data that's going to help with population health. 
And, and so that kind of thing, there's stuff, there are pieces out there, but I think we are still, if I think of that Rogerian diffusion of innovation, it's the innovators and the early adopters. And if I think of Malcolm Gladwell, right? So now where are the people who are now going to socialize that? Where are the mavens? Where are the salesmen? salespeople, where are the connectors, right? Mm -hmm. where, where are those things? And I'm sure they exist. But mm -hmm. again, if we're thinking from a systems perspective, which again is part of that challenge or part of that obstacle, um, then, then I think that happened, you know, that's part of it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you kind of answered the next few questions which were in, within that flow, which was obstacles, clearly multiple. And the drivers for change, which was clearly uh, preparing the population and having that come as a demand and doing a lot of groundwork for that. Um, was there anything else you wanted to add here between your yeah. vision and challenges? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think part of what I would add is I think that sometimes our perception of barriers stops mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. um, and I think our current structure mm -hmm. stops us. Mm -hmm. Right. I, uh, we have a healthcare system designed to work at close to capacity because that's mm -hmm. efficient. Right. Mm -hmm. But then when we have surge, when we have something like this, you know, I, I, I wonder, I ask myself, is our, our structure that we used in normal operations mm -hmm. and the way that happens, is that presenting a barrier for how we deal with surge capacity? And I think of uh, UN forces of Doctors Without Borders. I think of those places that go into a disaster area. They set up a mobile clinic so quickly, mm -hmm. right? They get that going and, and it closes when it's not there. And so I keep thinking, you know, something along that lines. What if we had that? What if, mm -hmm. uh, um, and, and again, I mean, there's a, a whole assessment that would need to happen. But what if arenas could be set up into makeshift hospitals because a hockey rink can be easily cleaned up, right? Or da da da. And those and places where we have double by rates, the way, right? India, India, and many other places. That's what's yeah. So, so in that, and I see Burlington, right? I see Burlington setting up one, but they're setting up a, um, you know, a wedding tent, a, <laughs> a thing that way. When we have municipalities that have closed uh, rec centers, that have closed rinks, right? So that have closed these spots. So it's, it's almost for me, like, is there something about that experience of our everyday that blurs it for us? And is, is it also because... Um, uh, I, I, I apologize for how this sounds, but that first world problem <laughs> stuff, right? That yeah. idea that we haven't experienced this, so therefore it's not in our uh, bailiwick. It's not in our toolbox to think, right, we're in emergency, so therefore what's the best locations for our mobile clinics? Boom, right? Boom, boom, boom. And, that's and again, the, that the word for that, I just want to interrupt you here, is chaos engineering. How good oh. are we at chaos engineering? Chaos engineering. Thank yes, you. That's a legit word. And that's what Indians are very good at uh, because a lot of things. 1.4 billion people, you'd have to be. Yes. And that's why <laughs> you see a lot of those tech CEOs in the world are Indians, actually. So okay. uh, in inherently being resilient, being quick, 
and uh, being good at chaos engineering is something which comes being living in India, you know. So I oh. totally understand that and, and then continue. And I'm sorry to <laughs> disturb. No. Or... So helpful. So helpful. And thank you. And that's exactly the thing, right? Is as you and I are even just chatting, I'm learning so much, right? These pieces are coming and I'm, you know, that's the other part is that engagement of the learning, right? That mm -hmm. I, I, I might bring an expertise, but my expertise has to be contextualized. Exactly. And I'm actually more excited and more humbled by what I don't know. You know, that fact that I'm stumbling on something and musing about something that you're telling me there's actually a whole country that has expertise in this mm -hmm. while I'm just in this space of going, gosh, what could, right? And so <laughs> that's exactly that, that, you know, what I was trying to get at before. So how does that connection get done so that those places that can bubble up and then it can be, oh, right? That somebody, the important group, whoever those are, can have that aha moment and go, right, of course, we are in a parallel. And again, not that I would use, sorry, I, I haven't said this yet. I can't say again. Not that I would use a war analogy to our situation. I am working with people who have survived literal war, um, uh, know the chaos, the, the deprivation, the terror of those pieces. And so for me, I would absolutely have a sensitivity um, from that to the, I will not use that analogy in, in, in this place uh, that we are with COVID. Um, and so, but from that, we do, there is some transferability of those experiences to what we're doing now to help us. And, and that's where, you know, kind of the being open to that. Mm -hmm. I think I'm just going to add two things to what you said. And this may be of interest to our listeners. At some point in the interview, Bob mentioned about wicked problems. And now we mentioned about chaos engineering. And one of our speakers is going to be Garima Bajpai, who's going to talk about chaos engineering for wicked problems using DevOps, which is a whole new method of software management <laughs> and development. And the other part is, Bob, just coming to the point of you said the, you mentioned people with experiences in war and things like that. For me, I'm just going to give a little personal things about me. Maybe our listeners don't know us and maybe mostly they don't know us. <laughs> so um, I lived and worked in Afghanistan. And um, so obviously you couldn't go on the streets and have fun and do things like how <laughs> you do normally. So my experience, uh, that was five years ago. I did for three months. I lived there for a project, which was nine months. And before that, I lived and worked in a remote area in India, um, in a place called Begusurai in Bihar. And again, it was uh, middle of nowhere where we were doing an M-Health project 10 years ago. Yes, I'm crazy. It was a long time back. And those, those are the situations where I draw upon my experiences of living in social isolation. And that's what's helping me now. So you never know actually what in your life is useful when. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, just to share perspective, because uh, uh, we come from different countries in Canada. Uh, we all have different trainings. And uh, uh, so just, just, just sometimes uh, for our listeners, this is the non-health 4.0, but a very human aspect is look back <laughs> in your own life or someone else's life to draw inspiration. And there may be plenty. 
Right. I watched uh, Chris Hatfield's An Astronaut's Guide to Self-Isolation. Yes. I thought, yes, I saw what that. better? <laughs> and, and my apartment is much nicer than the space station, at least yes, to me. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> In fact, it's but, funny. Um, there is a possibility. We, we, have, we, we still have to have confirmation. But there's a possibility we may have in the Health 4.0 Summit, somebody coming from... Uh, in the space industry and it's yet, it's yet to be confirmed uh but but that's that's brings to my concluding part which is we have a health 4.0 summit coming up in june and uh, bob what are what are your expectations from this summit and are you are you going to be there are you going to be coming <laughs> It's, I, online we, now. <laughs> it's online and, and yes that's uh probably right when you kind of think that we're looking at a 12 week out time horizon to be saying okay you know well eight week for for definitely for saying if something's eight week out it you know it can't be uh whatever um but 12 weeks in terms of that so the online is absolutely a great idea i i'm i'm excited i'm excited i haven't thought as much about what my contribution might mm-hmm. be Mm-hmm. Um, but what I have thought about is that idea that it's that place for people to bring new ide- ideas, mm-hmm. curiosity, and potential. And mm-hmm. from a broad base, I, um, you know, you mentioned somebody from space coming at it. I, I actually, um, a friend of mine did some stuff on art-informed research, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, is there an artist or two where we can get in there and see what their curiosity, right? People who are mm-hmm. going to look at this stuff differently and uh, uh, from their perspective, right? When we talk about bringing diversity to the table, it's not just the diversity of the faces we see, but it's that diversity of thought, right? Mm-hmm. So, so in that, I think the, uh, that part of bringing those, those there and that we have some opportunity for exchange, so that we actually, I think my expectation is that there's uh, information provided, right? Mm-hmm. So that people can do it and it's looked to be digestible. So maybe it has that people, you know, think in terms of a, what are they trying to, what are they trying to get across by what they're sharing? What's their mm-hmm. goal? That little brief so I can go a little bit bigger if that sounds deeper, if that sounds cool. And mm-hmm. maybe some other links where if they're published or even if they're not, they have a blog, they have a whatever, yeah. those places so that people can dig down to their level mm-hmm. so that the summit can be used for the connection to people. Mm-hmm. Because now, you know, when I, when I do uh, health planning, so I used to do national conferences on tobacco control, we mm-hmm. always had that tenant. We're having, you know, 400 people gathered together here. What can we do with 400 people in the same room that we can't do in any other setting? Mm-hmm. And so from here, that would be that kind of challenge, right? If mm-hmm. we're putting mm-hmm. these people together, what can this group do in that time frame that we could never do alone or through some, some other way? Mm-hmm. And I think it is making those connections to people. Mm-hmm. And so maybe there are online meeting rooms that you go into. Maybe there's, I, I don't know. And, you know, we're learning so much in this current experience with COVID of, you know, uh, virtual working, offline working, teleworking, um, that, you know, I, I don't see how this can't be that, uh, that big driver, this biggest driver for change. I, I, think, I think we're in it. So obviously we're, we're still going to be in it in, uh, at uh, Health 4.0, but uh, how can we leverage this 
uh, mm -hmm. to really push this forward, but ensure that those learnings stick post as well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Thanks for that wonderful <laughs> idea. And I can just speak to a few initiatives in our in our heads and some things we've started. And actually this will be very useful to us what you just gave us some pointers. So the first initiative we've started is doing this podcast, right? So by yep. doing the podcast, by the time we reach where uh, June 4th, we're gonna have at least, uh, I'm hoping one interview a week, but honestly, I'm, I'm doing five interviews a week. So, <laughs> so I may end up having a lot of interviews uh, before the summit actually happens. Um, so that's the first part. And then the second part is uh, putting these on. So the, the, the podcasts are available on Spotify and podcast, uh, Apple podcasts. So, um, so having them on public domain so that there's curiosity. The third part is um, the meeting rooms is something I've seen. I've never used it. So I'm looking at those aspects of technology and we have a whole going around uh, you know different web platforms to see what more features can we add like i know for sure because we've done survey designs we've done surveys immediately like after one person's finished speaking immediately there's a survey uh, because we don't want people to wait till the end and yeah. i know for sure definitely after the summit ends all that content is going to be made into a white paper and circulated for a bigger dialogue and uh, and and there is a health 4.0 introductory course coming up. So there's lots coming up from my side. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> and uh, and um, so if you guys want to know more about health 4.0, uh, our website is www.health4.tech, numeric four. And uh, thank you, Bob, so much for this amazing, amazing podcast. We went through the whole world. I feel like I, I went through all my emotions in the past one hour. <laughs> of recording as we fabulous. always do when we connect now <laughs> oh yeah it's always there it's anyways there but even more so so i just want to thank our listeners and thank you bob thank you this has been a pleasure